Thankful that you're here this morning with us, and I uh, hope you're enjoying your Thanksgiving weekend, and I uh, want to encourage you to be thankful for the Word of God, and you can do that by turning to Acts chapter 14. I want to begin by just uh, reminding you of one of the most famous evangelists of all time, Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, uh, through his crusades, it's said, it's estimated that he shared the gospel through his crusades with approximately 215 million people around the world in 185 different countries. He had a staggering impact, and there are countless people who uh, owe Billy Graham so much and would claim that because of his ministry, they met Jesus Christ. But one of the things that's so fascinating is that in 1990, in an interview with PBS, Billy Graham stated his belief that only about 25% of those who come forward at one of his events actually became Christians. Actually, in recent years, studies have shown that only approximately 6% of people who come forward at an evangelistic crusade or event actually have any kind of change to their beliefs or behaviors one year later. That's a staggering percentage, and obviously when you apply that to Billy Graham, that's a huge amount of people who gave their lives to Jesus Christ, but I think it serves to remind us it was a wake-up call to many in the crusade movement who recognized that a process of follow-up discipleship was essential not only to determine the authenticity of a profession of faith that had been made, but to see followers of Christ growing in maturity so that they too could go out and make disciples. It was essential that they saw that there was a path to follow, that it wasn't simply about bringing people into the body of Christ, it was about growing them up in the body of Christ so that they could be sent out from the body of Christ. And that's essentially what we've been looking at in the book of Acts. It's amazing to me how God, just in his sovereignty, allows us to pick back up in the book of Acts and reminds us as a church of all of the things that are so essential to who we are, to the very mission and heartbeat of our church because of the mission and heartbeat, listen, of God's church in general, universally. And one of the things that we've seen, we've kind of marched through these passages in Acts and we've seen and we believe and we say amen to the reality that we, as followers of Christ, we preach Christ, right? Amen? We preach Christ as the only hope of salvation for humanity. But the objective in preaching Christ, as we saw last week, is that we make disciples. A disciple is somebody who embraces Jesus Christ, who surrenders to the lordship of Jesus Christ, who says, I will follow Jesus Christ. I will lay down my life, and I will follow him. But what, the, what we've seen is it's not just enough to have somebody enter into that saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the starting point of discipleship, and what we look at today is so, so helpful to remind us this is what we're after as a church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what God wants for you, and this is what God wants to do through you. You see, we make disciples, we mature disciples, and then we multiply disciples. If I could frame it for you another way, we want to be disciple-making disciples. That is what the biblical picture paints for us. And that's what Paul has been pointing us towards, both, listen, both in his life personally, but also in his ministry. We ended on verse 21 and 22 just to kind of sum up this idea of making disciples last week, but we didn't dig in, and I want to begin launching our time together in Acts chapter 14, picking back up at verse 21. Let's read it together all the way through the end of the chapter. Luke writes this, he says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, there it is, the heart of this text, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, 
And they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no little time with the disciples. It's a powerful reminder that we preach Christ and we make disciples, but our responsibility as a church is to be maturing disciples and multiplying disciples. And I want to use that framework as we march through this text. I want to show you things that you need to be after, things that the church should be providing for you, listen, and the things that you should be doing in response. Paul has made many disciples, as we see in verses 21 and 22, but I love the heart of the apostle Paul. He knows that these disciples need to be built up and strengthened. They need to be growing because if the mission is going to move forward, it will only be possible if there are believers who are strong in the faith. We make mature and multiply. You need to ingrain that paradigm, that framework into your heart and mind. This is what God calls us to. We make mature and multiply disciples. That's the pattern. It's what I need, listen, and it's what you need. So to be a disciple-making disciple, I want to show you this first. I need to be pursued and pursuing. To be a disciple-making disciple, I need to be pursued by others, and I need to be pursuing others. And we see this in just verse 21, one simple word. You'll notice it says, when Paul, it says when they had preached, Paul and Barnabas, the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, notice this, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These are the places that we've been looking at over the past few weeks that Paul had previously preached the gospel and seen many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I love that we see here the heart of the apostle Paul. He's not just interested in accumulating numbers and look how many people, you know, sign decision cards or walk the aisle under my ministry. His heart is for the growth of the disciples who had already made professions of faith. And so he begins this long journey back And he marches through each of the places that he had previously been. And he wants to meet with those who have confessed Christ as Lord and placed their faith in Jesus, repenting of their sins and embracing the hope and eternal life that's offered through Christ. And he wants to see them built up. Now, we need to remember that when Paul had preached the gospel in these places, he'd spent time with these disciples. It's not like Paul just went in, preached a, a powerful message, and went, went on to the next city. Paul spent time. He labored with the people. He poured himself into these individuals. And if you read through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there's a variety and degree of which this happened in his ministry. Sometimes he spent six weeks. Sometimes he spent two years. But what we see is that he spent time. I just, I just love that what we see is that Paul knows there needs to be some kind of a follow-up process with these new converts, with these new believers in Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, there needs to be a pursuing of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And in recent years, sadly, I think this is, this is a mark of the evangelical church in, in much of North America. The church has not been very good at this. The church has been more interested in accumulating numbers, a quantity of disciples, rather than focusing on the quality of discipleship. And that produces a great damage to the life of the church. When you're focused on strictly numbers, what you're not doing is building into those disciples so that they're strong and healthy and making more disciples. And what's produced is a superficial kind of church culture and a superficial kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. And so what we desperately need is somebody to pursue us to deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. We need to be more consumed with a consistency of discipleship, and certainly we want to see God adding disciples into the body of Christ, but one of the things I I love when we look at the scriptures, we have so many pictures of what this is supposed to look like, and Paul, Paul paints this picture of discipleship marvelously. In fact, in this area in Galatia, this is the very time and place where he came across Timothy You know, Timothy, where where he eventually will will disciple Timothy up and he'll call him to pastor a church and he'll tell him that he needs to also develop and build up other leaders. But I love more than that the picture that Jesus gives us of discipleship, don't you? 
And Jesus was the master discipler. And I love in his ministry, he would go and, and, and call people to himself. He did that with every one of the 12, right? And he said, come, hey, drop your life, drop your work and your career, leave everything behind. I have something so much more valuable for you. Come and follow me. That's the call of discipleship. Come and find in me everything that your heart has been longing for, right? Everything else where you've tried to find your joy and satisfaction cannot provide, only I can. I am the hope and satisfaction for your soul. And so he calls these disciples to himself, and then he says, follow me. Mold your life after me. Enjoy my presence. Watch me. Hear me. And he spends, listen, three years investing in these primary leaders, right? These men who started off as nobodies, a very little education. He pours himself into them for three whole years. And we know why. Because he says he was going to leave them, and he was going to send the Spirit of God to them, and then he was going to send them to continue the work that he began. The call to make disciples. And that call to make disciples is so important for us to grasp because that was passed on to these men filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that commission is passed on from them to every single Christian who claims the name of Jesus Christ and is committed to his cause. As we look at Paul and his ministry, we look at Jesus, we can just glean a few things that might help us in our discipleship. Just notice these things. True discipleship requires commitment. It requires first a commitment, and I mean this in the sense that you need to understand that this is the call of God on your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You just need to realize that. Maybe, maybe you've never thought, like you're asking, what's, what's God's call on my life? Here's the call on your life. Go and make disciples. And we said last week, right, it doesn't matter where you go. What matters is that you go. And this is the call for every single follower of Jesus Christ. And embrace that call. I mean, cement it in your heart and mind. And maybe you've been doing all kinds of other things in the Christian life and you've been focused on some good things, but you've missed this greater thing. And what you need to do today is drive a stake into the ground and say, God, I I agree. I believe, Lord, what you've called me to is to go and make disciples. And though maybe I haven't been doing it or doing it very well, things are going to change. That's a great commitment that you might want to be making today. You need to know this. True disciples requires commitment, it also requires time. And we looked at Paul's life in a little bit, and we've looked at Jesus in the three years, and we just need to understand, some of us think that discipleship is just going to happen overnight. Some of us think it's going to like a flipping a switch, and instantly, you know, we just kind of add water, it grows overnight, and that's not the way discipleship works. And some of us need to commit not only to doing the the work of discipleship, we need to commit to the time that it's going to take and we're going to have to give up some things in our life if we're going to prioritize what God is calling us to do and who he's calling us to be. We need to schedule it, put it on our calendars, and we need to say, this is worth doing. It requires commitment, it requires time, and notice this, it requires intentionality. Again, I love this. Paul returns and he goes back to these places. I, just, I think Paul moves with such purpose, with such planning. He's so strategic and he's so driven to do what he knows God has called him to do. And if we're going to be effective at making disciples, we need to become far more intentional about making disciples. And lastly, you might want to add this to the list. True discipleship requires action. This is the disconnect in the Christian life so often for us, isn't it? We know what God says we're supposed to do. We just struggle to do it, right? You mumbled it under your breath, but you knew it was there, right? We, we struggle. We know. We know that God is saying this is what's most important. We believe even that God is saying this is what's most important for the world. We just struggle to actually do what we know we're supposed to do. And so I just want to encourage you, we, we oftentimes talk in the theoretical or we think in the theoretical, and I want to call you this morning, I want to exhort you and plead with you to put legs to the theology and the truth that you say you believe and embrace, and begin to pursue somebody or begin to seek the pursuing of somebody else in your life so that you can grow up as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, who, who, who can that be? Well, let me just give you a couple easy Uh, alternatives here. If you're a a father or a mother and God has blessed you with children, start there. 
God's given you a great responsibility to disciple your children. If you have friends who've just come to faith in Jesus Christ, or, or maybe you have friends that you, you're doing life with, but there's not much of a discipleship relationship, begin to pursue those people that God has placed in your life. Maybe you can just start like this. Maybe you can start by, by sharing Christ with somebody who God has placed in your life and praying that God would save them and then begin to work with that person and see them grow in maturity. The point is that we're doing what God calls us to do I need to be pursued, and I need to be pursuing. And I just want to be honest with you for a minute. You know, I, I need people. I need people to be pursuing me, and I need to be pursuing others. I need people who are willing to invest in me and wa- long to see me grow, pull me into those relationships where there's going to be more than surface-level conversations, where there's going to be real-life conversations that dig deep into my heart, and that's what you need for you too. And you say, well, what does that look like in this church? Where, where, do, we, where do we do this kind of discipleship? Here's where, here's where it begins for us, small groups. Small groups. Small groups isn't the only place we do discipleship. There's a variety of ways discipleship can look. It can be formal and informal. It can be uh, uh, structured and, or it can be just casual. But I just want to say this to you. you know, in this church, we take discipleship seriously. And, and the, pri- pri- the primary place where we focus on discipleship is in the small group context. That's where you are placed in a in life with other believers who will pursue you, and there's other believers around you that you can pursue for their good and for their growth. And if you're not in a small group, I just want to encourage you, look, and, and we don't do it perfectly all the time, and, and we're all sinners and messed up, so things don't always work the way they should, but I just want to encourage you, this is the framework that we are using, and we're trusting God will bless as we pursue being disciple-making disciples. So what then does discipleship involve? Well, that's the second point here. If I want to be a disciple-making disciple, I need to be taught and teaching. I need to be taught and I need to be teaching. In the very beginning of verse 22, look what Paul says. He says, as he went back to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, here's what his purpose was. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples. I love that picture, don't you? And there's this picture that all he wants to do is build them up, see them edified and strengthened in the faith. It's imperative. It's imperative that believers become stronger, that they become more resilient, that they're able to persevere. You know, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, that we're no longer like little children. And many, many live the Christian life like little children in the faith. The Bible says that there are a great danger of being pushed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. You know, they're easily persuaded and truth can be distorted so they can latch onto things that are actually damaging for them and they can actually, if they're not careful, destroy their faith. The greatest danger facing new converts is that they fall away from the faith. And Jesus talked about this. In Matthew chapter 13, he gives this parable of the different kinds of soils that the the seed of the gospel is sown upon. And he says this about one of those kinds of soils. He, He talked about those who endure for a little while, but then tribulation and persecution arise and they fall away, right? Life gets hard. They, they, they cling to the gospel at the beginning and it seems to be going well. And then all of a sudden they're attacked or they're persecuted, they're opposed. And so the pressure of that situation becomes too much to bear. And they're so weak in their faith and they're not strengthened in the right way that they fall away. And think in this context what these believers are facing. Like this is, this is, you know, sometimes we pitch the gospel like this. Come to Jesus and your life will be amazing, right? Don't we do that to people? I mean, just embrace Jesus and life gets better. Listen, if, if that's what you're selling people, you're not selling people the biblical gospel. Do you get that? And if that's what you've believed, you've not necessarily believed the implications of the gospel in your life. If you look at the scriptures, Jesus warned that if you're going to embrace him, you're inviting opposition and persecution. And by the way, Paul talks about if we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. You know what's interesting about that verse? That verse um, is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written actually in the context of this missionary journey right here, where the Apostle Paul is actually telling believers 
Listen to what he says in, in 2 Timothy 3.11. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. He says, my, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That's these places where he has been sharing the gospel. Which persecutions, he says, I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And then he goes on to follow it up with this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is staggering to think about. These believers were facing opposition. Remember, Paul had come in, he'd preached the gospel. Everywhere he preached, there was instant success, people believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then following that, right on the heels, was the opposition from the enemy. They were driven out of every place. And we saw last week, Paul himself was beat, stoned, and left for dead. These believers are facing the same kind of opposition. These new believers are walking into not a life of ease, but a life of hardship. But the awesome reality is, is they've understood that it's worth the cost. The concern is that the pressure and pain of opposition will destroy the faith of the weak, and so Paul wants to build them up. I was speaking with a pastor this past week, and he's planting a harvest church in Barbados. And... Uh, he was telling me about how God really began to change the trajectory of his spiritual life. He grew up in a, a very weak, by his own um, um, ad, admission, he, he just acknowledged that he grew up in a very weak church that was not very sound biblically. He was driven more by emotions, and it was very mystical, and so, so he wasn't that grounded in the Lord, and he said that the Lord really used this, this to wake him up. He's, he's got, his sister has five siblings. And all of the siblings are older than the sister, but all of the siblings have a different religious belief. So, you know, they got one who's a JW, one who's a Mormon, one who's a Seventh-day Adventist, one who's an atheist, and then they got one them who's Christians. I mean, what a mix in that family, right? And he said it, it, it was a wake-up call one day because all of the cousins were, were together at one time and he was listening to his nieces and nephews explaining their faith and quoting their scriptures and, you know, and, and they just knew what they believed. They were so anchored. And then he watched his kids talking and it was so light and fluffy and just emotionally driven and he went home with his wife and he said, we have a problem. He said, because our kids are growing up and they are not grounded in their faith. They are weak in their faith and they're going to be pushed around. They're not going to be able to defend themselves. And that's, listen, that happens with so many Christians. And so he committed to teaching his kids the word of God. And you ask yourself the question, what is it that strengthens the souls of believers? It is that. It is the word of God. That is God's designed means of building up the body of Christ. Strengthening is all about establishing and fortifying believers and churches. It's about granting to us a faith that endures and a faith that bears fruit. And Jesus said in Matthew 13 that that comes, that kind of faith comes only from hearing the word of God and understanding the word of God. And so it is essential that we are taught and teaching others the word of God. That is the foundation for believers. This is why teaching the word of, teaching the word of God or God's word is at the heart of the local church. That's why we put such an emphasis on it. Our, our desire, our concern is for your faith. It's for your souls to be built up. We don't want you knocked around by every wind and wave of doctrine. We want you holding fast in the midst of the storm. We want you to be able to look at opposition and stand firm in the strength of the Lord. We want you to be able to face trials and opposition and persecution and temptation and be unwavering in your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want you not faltering in the midst of chaos. We want you standing firm and listen, growing in the midst of chaos. The word of God is my weapon in the battle. The word of God is my anchor in the storm. The word of God is my food in the famine. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Listen, the word of God needs to be the primary focus of the church of Jesus Christ. It ought to be the focus of your spiritual life. You need to be feasting on the word of God, being built up with the word of God, growing your knowledge and understanding of all that God has said and all that God has done and all that God requires of you. But listen, that's not enough. So often in our discipleship making process, we are heavy on the head, listen, and light on the heart. 
And the word of God, here's what happens here. He moves from this idea of teaching, I believe, in strengthening the souls. And look at what he says in verse 22. He says, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, that's a great word, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I don't just need to be taught in teaching. Here's what I also need if I'm going to be a disciple-making disciple. I need to be exhorted and exhorting. The word encouraging there is closely related to teaching. The two concepts are so closely related. But teaching, listen, teaching focuses more on the head. Encouraging or exhorting focuses more on the heart. It takes it one step further, and here's how it can be defined. It's an appeal to the emotions and to the will of the hearers. Teaching lays the foundation for behavior exhorting, presses it into the heart of the believer, right? Again, that the disparity between what we know and what we do, right? This is so much of preaching, what I do on Sunday. Let me explain to you what God's word says, but let me call you to put it into practice in your life as I call myself to put it into practice in mine. And church, listen, we desperately need this. We desperately need this. Exhortation urges people to take action. It pleads with people to do with the word of God what they know it's calling them to do. And I think of this, this role of exhortation in the believer's life much like the role of a coach. You know, I, I was asked this question this past week, and so I want to propose it to you. Can, can you think of a great coach that you've had in your life? Just give you a second. Most of us can, right? Maybe it was a business coach, a life coach. Maybe it was a sports coach at some point in your life. But you can think of, of that coach and what they meant to you. Now, I want you to think of this question. What made them such a great coach? And for you, there's probably a variety of different answers like there is in my mind. But I'll tell you what I think makes for a good coach, at least in part. I know what my coaches, what made my coaches good. They, they not only taught me what to do, they pushed me to actually do it. They pushed me to be better. They pushed me to do more. They pushed me to go faster, to go further, to go harder than I thought I could possibly go. They reminded me of what I knew, and they said, listen, don't forget this. You can do it. And they came alongside me, and they pressed into me. They breathed courage and hope and life in many ways into me. They encouraged me to push through the struggle, to push through the pain I can remember being grabbed by the face and being told, Ian, you can do this. You know, right at that moment where you think you're, you're going to quit or throw the towel in or it's not worth it, to have somebody who grabs you by the face and says, don't give up. Don't throw the towel in. It's not worth it. The, the, what you'll lose is not worth it. If you press on, there's blessings in this. Don't quit. Keep going. That's a good coach. And listen, how desperately do we need to be that for one another in the body of Christ? How hard can it get? And look at the context again here, encouraging them to continue in the faith. How often do we find new converts especially, but believers in general who are being beat up by life circumstances and it's so hard, it's so painful. I wanna throw the towel in. I can't do this anymore. There's no way I can move another inch forward and to have somebody who comes alongside of us and puts their arm around us and says, you're not alone. You know you can push through this, not in your strength, but the strength of the spirit of God that lives within you. Don't quit. Keep going. I am with you, and better yet, God is with you. And that's, that's what we need. And that's what Paul does, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and again, reminding them that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God, and this is the life that Paul had lived. As I said, he, he refers back to his time. Like you, you know, This is how, so, how powerful this is for him. He's like, you guys saw me. You saw me beat up. You see, you, right now, remember, Paul has just been stoned, and he's marching back to these churches. He's marching in battered, bloodied, swollen, in pain, right? Like give the guy some Advil. He is a hurting unit. And he is looking at them saying, you can do it. My scars prove it. And if you want to be godly, if you want to be godly in this life, you will bring persecution. You've got to think about that, church. Listen, if you don't want, if you want to avoid opposition and persecution, if you want to make sure Satan leaves you alone, just don't try to be godly. It's as simple as that. Be like the world and Satan will go, great, I don't need to worry about this one. 
But if you want to be like Jesus Christ in this world, if you want to be godly, if you want to embrace the call that God has in your life, you can guarantee this. It will be hard because you are going against the grain of the culture. You will look so radically different. Your life, listen, it will bring conviction and it will bring the feelings of condemnation for the world around who is living in sin. And they will look at you and say, I don't like you. I hate you and what you stand for. The more godly you are, the more opposition you invite. And we desperately, if we're going to be godly Christians, and I pray that that's your heart this morning, you're going to need people around you. In fact, I think this is why, this is why so much of Scripture exhorts us towards this end. Look at Hebrews 3.13 on the screen behind me. Again, he uses this word, but exhort one another. How often are we supposed to be doing this? You see that? Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, how hard the Christian life is, how hard it is to be holy, how hard it is to fight the battle against sin, how strong our flesh is, and how desperately we need people to say, I'm with you, let's charge forward together, I've got you in this, come on, press on, don't give up. The day is coming where no man, no man will press on any longer. But until that day comes, Let's go. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12 again. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, right? We need that reminder. Let's walk worthy of the gospel. Take what you know and do something with it. In the same book, chapter 5, verse 11, he says this, therefore, encourage one another, same word there, and build one another up just as you are doing. Church, let this be your objective. You say, how can I do this? Let me just give you three things. First of all, invite it in your life. If you don't have anybody who's exhorting you like this, if you don't have anybody who's willing to come alongside of you and tell you the hard things and lift you up when you're down, you need to invite people in your life and say, I need this from you. I desperately need you to do this for me. I will be weak. I will stumble and fall and you need to help me. And then when they do it, listen, here's the second thing. You need to appreciate them and thank them, okay? Happy Thanksgiving. You need to thank those who are willing to say the hard things to you. That is not easy, is it? You risk a lot when you tell people hard things. And if you've got a friend who is willing to wound you, as Proverbs says, you praise God for that and you thank that person for doing what is hard. And then lastly, do this. If, those are, if that's what's happening in your life, and I pray it is, give it to others. And I mean that in the best sense of that phrase. Be willing to come alongside others and share with them, exhort them, all the more until the day draws near. Fourth, if I'm going to be a disciple-making disciple, I need to be shepherded and shepherding. I need to be shepherded and shepherding. And Paul goes on to show us how he wanted to support the church and provide structure for the church. In verse 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Just stop there. Paul knew his time was limited. He knew that he was going to be moving on and going to another place and preaching the gospel. And we can be assured that he spent considerable time building up new believers. But I, I think it's really important to see that I think Paul invested himself in working with prospective leaders, developing those who would take the baton from him and be, can continue to work of shepherding and leading the people of God. Appointing leaders was a priority for Paul in every city where believers were present. You'll notice that all of a sudden local churches are springing up. He's preaching Christ. People are getting saved. And listen, every person that's saved is brought into the family of God, into the church of Jesus Christ. But there needs to be structure. And you'll notice it's, this is so helpful to see. You say, why? Well, you know, first of all, what is an elder? An elder is somebody who is given oversight, a care for the church of Jesus Christ. The concept comes right out of the Old Testament, the Jewish understanding of an elder, one of the leaders of the people of God. And the, the position is marked by um, character attributes, by degrees of spiritual maturity. And you can read about it, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1. They give you a list of what that's supposed to look like. But these elders are given great responsibility in leading the church. 
and they, they serve the church by leading the church. And, and here's what that kind of looks like. They lead the church. They feed the church the word of God. They protect the church from false doctrine and from false prophets who will come in. There's a great weight of responsibility. They don't do so for selfishness or sordid gain. They're not supposed to. They do so for the good of the body of Christ. This isn't a position that you take for more power. You know, it's like Paul's going, well, how can I make sure I control the church? I, I know, I'll put some leaders in place who can report to me all the time and get me all the inside information. That's not his heart. In fact, we can tell from this verse what the heart of the Apostle Paul is. You'll notice verse 23, they appointed elders, look at the next phrase, for them. That's so important. It's not for himself, it's for the church. He wants them to grow and he knows that they will be served well when there's structure and men who are called by God to lead, they step up and lead. This reminds us too, by the way, that when we're saved, God brings us into this thing called the church. The church is God's idea, it's not man's invention. There are people who want to dismiss the church and say the church isn't important, you know, they want to redefine the church, but what we see here is that Paul, by the Spirit of God, is establishing the local church. Structure, order, and it's all to support and sustain the life of the believers, to grow them up into godliness, to make them more useful Disciple-making disciples. You know, God's design is to use the church for your growth. And I'm, I'm thankful for the elders that God has given us at this church, and I know their desire is for you and for your growth. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea. You know, there are certain individuals who are gifted and called by God to lead in a certain way, to shepherd the people of God. But I just want to encourage you, 1 Peter 5 says that there are to be examples to the flock, and I think that's examples of godliness for sure. Here's what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Here's how you can pattern your life, not perfectly, but hopefully there's an example there. But I think there's a model, an example of what it means to disciple and pour yourself into other people. And so I just want to encourage you, I believe that God has called every one of us to be a part of the shepherding of other people. Your families, your children, the people that are around you, God has placed you in different ways and to differing degrees with different capacities and different callings. Listen, but all a part of the same goal. We wanna help lead, we wanna help feed, we wanna help protect one another, we wanna build each other up in godliness and we need to embrace this mentality in the life of the church if we are gonna be disciple-making disciples. This is how we mature, and this is how we multiply. Fifthly, notice this. You want to be a disciple, make a disciple. I need to be surrendered and surrendering. And this is so, so great. Halfway through verse 23, it says, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The them there is the church for which the elders were given. What he's saying is he's looking at this church. You have, to, you have to get the sense of what he's getting at here. He's looking at the church, and Paul, remember, his, he loves these people. He's poured himself into these people, and now he's raised up leaders, and he's appointed them to lead the people, but his heart is still there with the people. And so he does the one thing he knows is most important, right? He commits them. He surrenders them into the hands of the sovereign, living God. And he says, God, you need to take these people. You need to care for these people and protect these people. And I love that because we see an example here of Paul. Paul is just relentless in his devotion to the Lord. He's relentless in the task of discipleship. He spends himself. Every ounce of energy is poured out for the cause of Christ. And you see that? Isn't it amazing? But how awesome is it to see, listen, the human responsibility never trumps God's sovereignty in the growth and maturing of God's people. And I just, what a great, what a great example we have from the Apostle Paul. Listen, we invest ourselves in this and we, like, we, we're thankful, aren't we, that God will use us to grow up other people? But at the end of the day, the greatest thing we can do is not our own efforts and own discipleship, it is to surrender people to the care of the Lord. I just think that's so helpful because how much time and energy and effort and emphasis do we put on what we need to do? Isn't that true? I mean, I need to do more. I, I need to give them another article. I need to send them another book. I need to sit down with another copy. And those things are all right and good. But how much might things change? How might people be grown up more and more if we simply get on our knees before the Lord and surrender them to the Lord? God, I've done what I can do. You've got to do what you promised to do, God. 
That's the mentality we need as followers of Christ. God, if you don't show up, it doesn't matter what I've done. If you don't move in this person's life, God, it doesn't matter. Listen, the real work we do is the work of prayer on behalf of the people we are leading and shepherding. That is the greatest work of all. I just want to encourage you. How my, I, was, I read a, a book and Charles Spurgeon was, was talking about his friend Hudson Taylor. They were contemporaries. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary who impacted so much of the world. And, and, and in this sermon, Spurgeon is talking about how much he loves his friend. But he told the story of Hudson Taylor's conversion. Hudson Taylor, by his own admission, was a, a prodigal child. He ran away from the faith. He grew up in a Christian home. You know, he had, he had his parents investing in him and pouring into him and trying to disciple him, but he turned his back on the things of the Lord and he decided to do his own thing. And late as a, as a teenager, he, he, t- he told Spurgeon the story of his mom, his mom who was so convicted and compelled to pray for her son and pray specifically for the salvation of her son went up to her room and prayed and prayed and prayed and she said she, she could not quit until she knew that the Lord had saved him and finally the Lord relented upon her as she prayed for hour after hour after hour pleading with God to save her child. She finally had freedom and in that moment... In that moment, her son was in a church for the first time, and I can't even remember how long, hearing the gospel for the first time and getting saved by the grace of God. And he comes home, walks in the door, and says, Mom, there's something I need to tell you. And she says, I know you just got saved. Call that whatever you want. I call it faith to believe that God will do what he says he will do. And how much more desperate should we be for the souls of God's people that God would grow than your children to plead with God, God, do what I can't do. I can only do so much that if you don't show up and break their hard hearts, God, if you don't show up and show them the glory of Jesus Christ, God, everything I've done is in vain. So God, I will do the greater work of calling out to you. Work hard. Listen, church, work hard at discipling, but work harder at praying for the people you're leading. I'm so, so convicted of the need for this. We need to be surrendered to God's sovereignty, and we need to be surrendering others to God. And you say, well, what should this look like in my life? Let me just ask you this. Do, do you know right now that there are people praying for you? Do you have people praying for you? How encouraging should that be to your soul to know that you have people who love you and are calling out to God on your behalf. Here's the flip side of that. Are you praying for someone? Are you praying for others? Are you surrendering them to the Lord? Are people calling out to God on your behalf and are you calling out to God on the behalf of others? You have to believe this, church. You have to believe this. There is no greater work than you can be doing than calling out to the sovereign God who is mighty to save and who is mighty to sanctify Oh, would that be our heart in this church? Lastly, I need to be reminded and reminding. If I'm going to be a disciple-making disciple, I need to be reminded and I need to be reminding. Reminders work powerfully in our hearts. In this last section, Paul describes how he goes back to all of these cities where he preached the gospel, but I want you to see there that he, he stops off. It says in verse 25, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, and I just, I'm reminded in this, listen, Paul has just had a relentless journey. He has to travel back 300 miles. He is beaten and sore. Again, you know, most of us would be like, I just need to get home. Right? I just need to be in a place of comfort for a little while. But Paul, I, what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is this. The, the gospel is just never very far from his heart and from his lips. There's Perga, and he goes, hey, you know what? There's an opportunity there. Let's go preach the gospel there. I want to tell people that they can be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we'll get home later. There's people who need to hear that there is hope in Christ Jesus. I just, I just think that's a great reminder, isn't it? How busy we can be, even in ministry and in life, and we can forget that what we should be consumed with is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he preaches on his way back in Perga, and certainly God probably saved more sinners, gave them hope, and gave them joy. Verse 26 and 27, and from there they sailed to Antioch. That was home base. That's where they were launched out of on this ministry journey where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now, 
I love that verse. It reminds us of some very important things. At least three truths here I just want to draw to your attention quickly. It reminds us first of this, that the two missionaries have faithfully fulfilled God's calling for this mission. Did you catch that? That they had fulfilled. I love that thought because that, that should be the objective for every one of us as followers of Christ. God is calling us to this mission. God is sending us to people. And what we want to hear at the end of the day when we would stand before God, isn't it true? Well done, good and faithful servant. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I fulfilled my mission. I've done what you've called me to do, Lord. Like that should be the desire of all of our hearts if we're in Christ this morning. God, help me. Help me to be faithful and to fulfill the thing that you have called me to. Secondly, we're reminded this, that the proclamation of the gospel is work. You notice that? They're, when they were, uh, excuse me, commended to the work, the grace of God, for the work that they had fulfilled. proclamation of the gospel is hard work. It is hard work to be a faithful follower of Christ, so get it out of your head that this is a life of ease. Just think about what Paul had gone through just by way of example here, all of his deeds, all of his actions. He's walking, sailing, contacting strangers, speaking to Jews and with Gentiles, entering synagogues, explaining the scriptures, proclaiming Jesus as Savior, teaching new believers, and deciding how to react to opposition and persecution, and so on and so forth. It was hard work but it was so rewarding. Thirdly, we're reminded in this verse of this that everything that they accomplished was the result of the grace of God. Remember when they were sent out? We were told they were commended to the grace of God and that, that, that idea should stir in your mind. In chapter 13, we're told that the Spirit of God called them, that the Spirit of God sent them and we see in the ministry the Spirit of God empowered them and you just need to see that all along in every aspect of their ministry, the Spirit of God is the one working mightily. Every person who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ believed because the Spirit of God shattered their hard heart and used the message of the gospel. The Spirit of God was the one who protected them in difficult and dangerous situations. It's just such a sweet reminder that the grace of God is sufficient. What God calls us to in His grace, He empowers us to. Everything that is accomplished in our lives and in our ministries is a result of the gift of God's grace, right? Some planted, some watered, Paul said, but who gave the growth? God did, all along. Every time he planted, every time he watered, the Spirit of God was there. The Spirit of God was there giving the growth, nourishing the souls of the people, opening the eyes of the blind. It was always the Spirit of God. And how amazing is it for us to realize that anything we get to do for God is a gift of his grace, no entitlement, no deserving. All right? It's a privilege and it is a blessing to be used by God in any way. And they come back and they share this report with the church. Verse 27, when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith. Look what God has allowed us to do. Look what God did through our ministry. Look how God opened the door so that unbelieving Gentiles could be saved and embraced in the family of God. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I'm sure they wanted to hear all of the stories, but you have to see this. They pull them all together and they celebrate all that God had done in his grace. So why did they do that? One, I think, I think there was a sense of obligation. This was the church that sent them, remember? But, but here's why this is so important. Because we're reminded that the work that Paul and Barnabas did wasn't simply their work, was it? It was the church as a whole. They were all involved. These people, they had skin in the game. Yeah, maybe not quite as much as Paul and Barnabas. But man, they were praying. They sent them off. They had given them resources for the journey. They were longing to hear what God would do through these two men. And so what a joy for them to come back and say, hey, here's, here's what God has done. Let's celebrate it together. And I think that it's incredibly important to hear what God is doing to, so that we might be able to elevate our worship to God. Don't you think so? When we see God's hand at work, we can offer him greater worship and greater praise. It's fuel that ignites our praise. Listen, and it's fuel that propels the mission of the church forward. Oh my goodness, God is at work. Look at what God is doing. Look at the barriers that the gospel just crashed through. Look how Satan tried to oppose you. And look what God has done. Praise God. Hallelujah. Our God is greater. And the gospel will not be stopped.
We need these reminders. And so I, I've got a reminder for you. Uh, Pastor Joseph in Romania sent me a, a video, and he wanted me to share it with you. And he just wanted you and us to be blessed by the way that we as a church are coming alongside them in Romania for the work that God is beginning there. And I just hope this encourages you and fuels your heart for the mission. church, look what God is doing through you. Church, look what we get to be a part of. Did you hear him? Thank you for fighting alongside us. So we get to be a part of. This is just a small taste of the joy it is to see the gospel moving forward. And I, I pray, listen, I pray that these reminders, and I pray that that just fuels your heart to want to worship God and to want to pour yourself out to make disciples to mature disciples, and to multiply disciples. Look what God is doing through the church. This small church in Antioch sent two men off, filled with the Spirit of God, wrapped in the prayers of God's people, and what happened was a wave of the gospel that began to move across this region in Galatia. Person after person, saved by the grace of God. Churches established, the gospel going forward. Praise God. Look what we get to be a part of, church. This is what we get to do. And I hope that that reminder is an encouragement to your soul. You know, God wants to remind us of his grace and how he wants to use us. And one of the greatest reminders we have is the gift of the Lord's table. And this morning, as we prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord, I want you to see this for what it is. This is a reminder that God has given to you and me. It's a reminder of his goodness, of his grace, of his care, and it's a reminder of his provision. That God saw us when we were lost, and God came for us. God gave his life to make us disciples. He paid for all of our sin. He washed us clean. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death so that we could have hope and life and joy in him alone. And what a privilege it is for us to go and tell others about the gift of God's grace. Amen.